This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Rohadi Nagasar. Rohadi is an author and a podcaster, and recently published the new book, When We Belong, Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins. We recorded this conversation back in February, so you won't hear us talk about any of the world events that have happened since then, but this is a well-timed release of the show because Rohadi's new book has been published and is available for purchase now. We talk in this conversation about Rohadi's own journey of faith and belonging and identity, and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, which is a Substack publication. Exvangelical is a production of The Post-Evangelical Post, and you can support it at $4, $6, or $8 a month. And at any of those rates, you will receive ad-free podcast feeds, subscriber-only content, access to a Discord, and more coming in the future. Every single subscription does matter. It does help me take steps forward towards making this my full-time work. So please, if you are able, please support this work via a subscription. I donate 25% of my net proceeds each month to organizations that, that serve populations harmed by white evangelicalism, including White Homework and the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. You can learn more about that at postevangelicalpost.com. This episode was edited by Elizabeth Nordenholt and Podcast Audio. Thank you very much. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Rohadi Nagasar. Rohadi is the host of the podcast Faith in a Fresh Vibe, which just wrapped up a season on deconstruction, in which I had the privilege of being a guest on. He's also an author with a forthcoming book, When We Belong, Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins, coming soon from Herald Press. Rohadi, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Blake. Thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you on your show and wanted to have you on mine. This is a show that's really just pretty much rooted in personal stories. And to that end, I like to start at the beginning of people's stories that come on the show. So to kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up and what your sort of first exposures to religion or church were like. Well, thanks for inviting me here into your space. It's always fun to yeah, I think you reached out and said, "Hey, I want to reciprocate," and that's uh, that's oddly rare, at least in my experience. Maybe not <laughs> in, I'm not interesting, but the uh, <laughs> folks who uh, do that to, to exchange stories—that's a really powerful tool that we have, and one that I think is really cr- critical. And one of the obvious pieces of this whole deconstruction evangelical movement, and I criticize pieces of it, but one thing you can't strip away from anyone is their story. Yeah, all yeah, for sure. Folks using tools to tell their story, and that's what is so valuable, and it gives other people life. So I appreciate you asking that question and not starting off, you know, with our the the glib uh, evangelical bit fascination whatever you want to call it of uh, tell me your your what, what do they say conversion story or when you came to christ or give me yeah whew. that's that's too loaded in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> well mine's yeah. always mine was always uh it's whatever i it, i was a kid end mm-hmm. of story and i try to add pieces 
to, oh, but you know, when I went to seminary, I, or so anyways, my story, I grew up in Calgary. Calgary's three and a half hours north of the Montana border, known for the 1988 Olympics, probably known for Banff, which is an hour and a bit away, <laughs> more so <laughs> than what Calgary has. Calgary is often confused or called probably only by us as the Houston of the North, Houston of Canada. <laughs> Alberta is, uh, when Alberta is a hot mess, which is the province. So we don't have states here. We have provinces. And Alberta is the, if things are going really bad, we make fun of ourselves and call it the Florida of Canada. Um, <laughs> but if things are normal, then it's the Texas of Canada. So it's usually the Texas of Canada. Rural Alberta would be very similar to any rural region really in America. Very conservative. We can talk a little bit of the difference of evangelicalism between Canada and America, but definitely conservative in their faith. But in the city centers, the two main cities in Edmonton and Calgary, we were metropolitan, increasingly becoming more multi-ethnic, although very white. And so when I grew up in Calgary, and I've been here almost my whole life, the city was much smaller and, of course, very, very white. I was born in Trinidad. To situate yourself, that's the last island in the Caribbean and uh, just off the coast of Venezuela and came to Canada when I was two. My dad and I immigrated over here. My mom was born in Calgary. My mom's side, we have roots going back. I'm all the Asians, so West Indian from Trinidad, but on my mom's side, Chinese and Japanese. And the Japanese side goes back just before the, well, both Chinese and Japanese in between the world wars. The Japanese side, of course, went through internment. Uh, the Chinese side, I have roots in Alberta that go back a hundred years, which is nothing compared to the lands of which I'm on, which they're treaty lands here. And that's how we mark the indigenous territories. It's Treaty 7 territory and Métis Region 3, where I'm situated. Uh, the Blackfoot, the Tsutsana, and the Stony Nakoda Nation are the, are the tribes, we call them nations here, around this space, this city I call Calgary. So that's a little bit of where I'm from or my people. Did you want to know, was the second part of that about church? Yeah, yeah. I I think geography is such a, it is such an interesting part of people's stories. And I don't, so just one of the reasons why I find that, why I find that an interesting place to start is, well, my, I come from Indiana, which is, it, it's basically a place that if you're white, like a lot of the history was erased. <laughs> and so of the indigenous, indigenous population and things like that, if you compare the Midwest to some of the older parts of the United States, like the East Coast, it feels very young, even though, but that's just because we don't have the history. Nonetheless, like all those different things inform how we start to develop an identity and the type of people we come from, the type of place we come from. I think for the, for the purposes of these types of shows, like the ones you and I do, I think it's also important, you know, to dial down and also say, this was the type of faith place that I was brought up in. And, and uh, I think, yeah, th so that's why I sort of 
I, I put those two questions together on the show really is just where did you grow up? And also what was that sort of first venture into, into church? Like whether it was there with you for as long as you can remember, or if it was something that came into your life later. Yeah. And, and that's a good connection to draw those two together. And then there's so much more behind like uh, Alberta and Calgary, they're similar in that the history is not as deep, even Canada as a country as, as this, this space, it's, it's not that old. Right. And so to draw back further, both the stories of the land before you, but also your own people, it starts to add and, and yeah, add pieces to who you are now, which is important when you do work around, let's say reclamation. And so for myself, growing up in Calgary as a new immigrant, as uh, I'm, I'm brown, there's no way I'm passing as anything else, yet having all these different intersections of ethnicities, Asian ethnicities, our work was to assimilate. You want to survive. It was to assimilate as new immigrants. Now, my mom and all of her family, that wasn't the work of assimilation. They're from here. She's from here, right? And so that was more now the work of facing the constant pressures of cultural whiteness. So it's within that, and I wouldn't have never named it as such, but it's within that context of a conservative city at the turn in the mid 80s, you know, when <laughs> it was probably the same in the States when interest rates were like 13, 15%, couldn't buy a house, all that stuff. So yeah, in the 80s, we wound up at a local church. How we came to faith, here's, you know, here's the story, your faith story, how you came to, my mom, my aunt, my aunt came to faith because I, I guess some evangelicals dragged her to church when she was a, <laughs> a reservist in the army, which is so weird because so few people in Canada, like there's no big sentiment for the army here. Uh, militarism is not a thing here, but for some reason, my aunt was in the reserves and someone took her to church and she found Jesus, found Jesus, came home on fire for Jesus. And like, I'm using these terms because that's exactly what it was and dragged my mom to church. In fact, dragged a whole family to church, my dad as well. And my dad hasn't been in, in the church picture really, but at the start he was, which is really fascinating because once we went to a, a larger, probably evangelical church, we then switched by both relationship and also because it was the closest to this small white steepled church down the road from us. It was close. It was ultra charismatic. It was charismatic fundamentalist. It was, to use the term, wild. <laughs> now, being a kid, all that wildness sort of skipped me. And I was really only concerned about whether or not I would get the latest insert of the picture Bible, of which we can deconstruct the picture Bible too. <laughs> but that was like the biggest thing for me growing up. My dad had to encounter all the, the fundamentalism, anti-science, literal uh, seven-day creations. Man, I remember the VHS tapes in the house. The guys coming over trying to convince dad and mom that 
you know, the earth was created in seven days. Look at these footprints of, why do I remember this? <laughs> these footprints, <laughs> do you remember the VHS? I don't know. If like, oh, it's had like a little peach color on it. Anyways, we switched from that space. I think again, by relationship, we knew someone. And that was a, I'm going to guess all white church to an evangelical proper, <laughs> proper evangelical church. And then stayed in that tradition. That tradition is the one that has formed me. All my formative years growing up is within what I would say now, white evangelicalism. I wouldn't have used that term at the time, but that in Canada would have looked almost the exact same as everything in the US, just not as militant, not as connected to military to flag, but really we were singing the exact same songs. We were doing the exact same Bible studies. Like, oh man, what was the one I just saw on Twitter? Someone shared and it brought back all the memories. Uh, Blackaby, uh, Experiencing oh, God. Yeah, Experiencing you ever God. Remember? I and, did that and when one I say that, <laughs> you can picture exactly what that front cover looked like, you know? Yeah, it was black like, with like iconic. gold letters. Black with like gold letters. I yeah, think there yeah, was yeah. A- and it was what, Moses on the front or Abraham? Anyways, I think, yeah, no, I think there some a... white Abraham <laughs> was on the front. Yeah, we had that. We had all that same stuff. So the same stuff that that shaped and formed evangelicals in the U.S. Same, same. Did you get all the lovely, you know, like purity culture and all sorts of other stuff like within yeah. within? I mean, because it sounds like you're in the same sort of time frame that. I was probably working into like I was born in 83, you know, so my youth group years were the end of the 90s, which was uh, peak I kiss dating goodbye every man's battle type uh, business. Um, and like, <laughs> I'm by no means I'm by no means a like, a, I, I don't have like a, a ton of familiarity with with Canada's history or anything like that. So I am very curious about how things how things were either similar or different, you know, you mentioned that it wasn't as militant, which like, a, I actually happen to have the Jesus and John Wayne book right here, which is, yeah, uh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Which is all about, uh, there's a whole chapter on militancy here in the U S. Yeah. So the fantastic book, but not really resonating in terms of its central metaphor of John Wayne. Really? Yeah. So we, cause we, we didn't have a lot of John Wayne, maybe a generation did, but but that connection piece that's so crucial to John Wayne, like maybe the the uh, Lone Ranger, Wild Wild West kind of thing would resonate. But because we lack that connection to military and that imperialist arm, we don't associate our even our our Christianity for evangelicals with that in the same way. Evangelicals in Canada right now would probably be at best 8%, but I think it's closer to under 5% of all of, of the entire population. So right off the bat, it's a minority group. So the posture for evangelicals here is one more of holding on <laughs> for dear gotcha. life, really <laughs> protecting a way of life rather than operating as some type of authority. So if you don't have the numbers, you can't operate as gatekeeper. I mean, you'd still try theologically, of course, but you don't have as many tools and you certainly don't have the connections to power, particularly political power. Although we're seeing a shift around there, 
Canada is different in terms of its governments and its its politics. We don't have two a two party system really. We have uh, multiple. So our conservatives would take about a third of the vote every every time, and then the rest of the country roughly is left leaning or left of center. So two thirds. So culturally, that's also different as well. Yeah, that's so. To ask a follow up question first about the sort of religious sociological thing that you mentioned about it being a smaller percentage of the population. Does that mean that evangelicals tend to be more ecumenical with other types of forms of Christianity? Because a lot of times what here in the U S like evangelicals sort of mind their own business. They run the roost. They like, they basically run the Republican party. Uh, and yeah, no, they did. They never used to. That yeah, was, what was yeah. other? I mean, it's absolutely not. It's at this point now, historically, yeah, yeah, where yeah. the, where the GOP basically caters to powerful evangelical concerns. And here in the U S we still have basically somewhere between 18 to 25%, they say are white evangelicals of the U S population. So like, that's a very high demographic number here in the U S. Uh, so I'm curious, like when it comes to how evangelicals relate to other Christians, do they still have that sort of, you know, they discount that style of Christianity. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. There's like, if you want to like slam Canadian evangelicals is that they don't have a unique thought. And I'll interchange between they and we, like depending on where I situate myself in the story. <laughs> That's right? fair enough. Yeah. But they they don't have a unique thought, really. Maybe some try, but ultimately the the formative cultural aspects all come from the U.S. Can you name a Canadian evangelical? Like, so maybe uh, there's one. I'm trying to think. I mean, well, uh, erstwhile, <laughs> you know that guy. The erstwhile evangelical Josh Harris used to be evangelical. He moved to Vancouver a while ago, <laughs> but he was yeah, American. He, yeah, he's an American. <laughs> and, so I, I barely know and haven't read those books, but have read all the others. So would they play? No, they, they, they would pull in the same idea that they are the gatekeepers of all truth, of their own truth. I mean, everyone has that, which is fine. But the problem is, is when you draw a hard line on this is the truth canada uh are at one point uh, at the turn of the just after the war rather as a percentage of population went to sunday service at a higher percentage than america this is all mainline though and then in the 60s there's a fracturing so the country has been shaped and formed by mainline traditions catholic and anglican or there's a united church of canada being another one and so that's what's still around, but Canada now is sort of in between or very similar to some of the metro areas in that we are post-Christian in between America and Europe in terms of where we are culturally. So although there's probably affiliation for a now dwindling majority, how many people actually go to a service, you know, pre-COVID, but go to a service weekly, it's not a lot of Canadians, maybe a quarter, probably less. I'd have to look that one up. But it's through mainline connections, still strong Catholic presence. There's still separate school boards. So the Catholic church still runs a separate school board in most provinces, as far as I know, and almost all of them, in fact. So 
that influence is still there. But if you were to talk to the average Canadian, it's one of those spiritual but not religious conversations. It's going to be the growing minority of nuns, very similar to the US, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and the folks who have no religion. That's what the box are going to check on the census. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, n- yeah, nothing in particular or nuns. Yeah, interesting. That's really, really interesting. I, I think I did have another question from a more political perspective, but maybe we'll loop back to that. Let's get. Let's actually get back to uh, your own. Just per- dating goodbye. Okay, let's <laughs> go back to. Yeah, let's, never read it. Okay, good. It's good. If you've never read it, that's great. <laughs> well, that, that was the thing, though. Like, so we were born in the same year. Um, the youth group and all that because i was part of such a small church and my mom wasn't deep in like absolutely god-fearing woman but didn't drag me to all the evangelical stuff didn't force me to do that and because youth group was so small like a lot of that just skipped me uh i was too busy playing sports or or whatever so trying to be a DJ. <laughs> That's nice. another podcast. <laughs> so I did skip the the purity culture stuff. You still got the the ethic around sex, of course. In Canada around that time, and by around that time, I mean coming of age, so 18 for uh, us here. That was around the time where the world was going to fall apart because same ge- gendered marriage, same sex marriage was going to come into effect federally. And so evangelicals were working really hard around that in Canada. So that took a lot of focus. This just in Canada didn't fall apart. We're doing great. Um, it's actually fantastic. Uh, evangelicals might have been wrong on that one. Well, they are. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I, that's yeah. the dating piece of uh, it, it. I was definitely around all that. It touched me, but it when I see the stories around deconstruction or ex-evangelical it's like yikes like because the world around us didn't look like that it was easy to escape the clutches of that type of abuse well that's that's great i mean like like (laughs) the fact that you don't have that 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 to contend with is that i can remember like maybe it's coming i don't know oh boy (laughs) hopefully you have the resources to address it if it's coming for you. (laughs) I would just assume a lot of anger. (laughs) (laughs) So after, you know, you have these, these experiences at charismatic churches and other evangelical churches in Calgary, and you have this, this family dynamic, including your aunt and your parents, was there a point like in your adolescent or adult years that, that you started to, in either direction, like you were like, okay, I'm sort of done with this or, oh, this is interesting. I want, I want to explore this a little more. What, where did that start to go when you got a little older? It was neither of those, but I like the, I like your phrase of, hmm, that's interesting. I've never really thought about it through that lens. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, I think that uh, people have like, there are other, they, they have like, they have, they're prone to religiosity or they're not, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it's even. I like the inquiry of that though. Mm -hmm. You know, as I process now and have been for the past 10, 15 years, you don't need to tell a person of color, especially black and brown bodies that they don't fit in white evangelicalism. 
we just know in our bodies, but sometimes you can't actually pinpoint it. You can't name it. Some folks, they're just born really into that type of juxtaposition. Uh, but growing up in white evangelicalism, really, I was never permitted full belonging. And so my hunch around that, so maybe this is the inquiry part, was that why is this church so incompetent at connecting with people who don't look like it? And that was through the lens of, of evangelism. Because remember, like the biggest thing from, from church was if someone new came, like <laughs> so rare, but like if someone new came it would blow our minds, like what on earth? Because that was, that was the chief possibility coming to life like bring people into the service was your role let the let the clergyman do the rest we didn't call them clergymen and so i was always looking around not just at my little church but it certainly shaped and formed me but when yeah i'll get to that it, it was always a question of incompetence and that's the word i was using like <laughs> we just don't know how to connect with people who don't know the stories will maybe attract some lapsed Christians or someone who moved to the city, right? That's how most churches grow. Transfers, births, or lapsed. So you came back. Oh, immigration is the third one of, of already church people. And that's how churches grow. You have to read my other book for that. That's not even my data. I'll send you the <laughs> data. So we never grew through conversions. Like no evangelical church does. And I think the little, when the, when the pin hit the floor, was when I went to a, uh, a, one of the big churches, very few mega churches in Canada, very few. And the mega church to us, like in my city, would be maybe a couple thousand at that church. And that's a big, like gigantic, can't even conceptualize, that's huge. Going to that church, to their baptism service, and hearing the stories and realizing not one was a story of someone who encountered Jesus as an adult, but they were all either kids, which is fine, or, or people who grew up in the church getting baptized. It's like, wait a minute, like even the big churches struggle with that. So I think what changed me was the inability to belong as a racialized minority, but not naming it as such initially. So I went to university right after, didn't do any Bible stuff, but I knew, and here it comes, I had a calling. I just knew it, right? And it's like, sometimes you just know. And this was what my weird moment of, you just know. And so I had a calling to go into ministry. What kind? I don't know. So all that did was set up going to seminary after university. So in seminary and being able to visit other churches, evangelicals still, but larger churches and see how they work. I started to shape around the time, uh, the, the first wave of deconstruction before it was hot, when Brian <laughs> McLaren and uh, all those cats were together. They were all together. What, who's the other one? Mars Hill, the two Mars Hill guys. Yeah. Well, Mark Driscoll was, and uh, Rob, Rob Bell. Bell. Rob Bell. All, yeah. those, all those homies were all doing a bunch of white guys, but all these homies were doing this, the same thing. They were asking questions about, about what's happening culturally with the church. And so that struck me in that moment and reading Brian McLaren uh, during that time as I was questioning, not my faith, but the issue of belonging in church and incompetence 
led me down a path initially of mission. So that brought me into a space and being an entrepreneur into the whole emergent. And then as that kind of pittered out, the missional movement, which was a little bit more theological and being an entrepreneur, the only choice I had was try to do worship because I'm built (laughs) like a good evangelical. My giftings when I was coming out of seminary and still today, although now I've grown a different wolf, was lead pastor. Um, now, not the big type A personality, but those were where my skills are. But there's no way in a white city and in evangelicalism where there's virtually no multi-ethnic churches. It might be similar in the US, but it's, that's totally the case here. There was absolutely no way I was going to be able to live into my gifts in a church. I would have to church plant. So that's the direction I went and have gone and have stayed in ever since. But that was also tied to this idea of mission, that if we simply solved the thinking and the function of the church around mission and how it reached out to people who didn't look like it, we would solve the problem and name it like this. And now I would, the problem of belonging for those on the margins. And it took me a few more years after that to realize, okay, maybe there's a theological thing here, but missional is still dominated by white men in its thought process. And also in church planting is all white men generally. Those things are shifting now, but I've come to a, a distinct place now which processes matters of belonging through a racialized lens to say, actually, you don't belong because there is a, a deep power of uh, racialization, of division along ethnic boundaries that is bigger than the problem of mission. And so that fast forwarded from seminary, however, 15 plus years ago up until today, but that was the inquiry. Those were the questions that catalyzed why think of something outside of what clearly does not welcome or want you. I wasn't going to leave my faith because that didn't seem to escape me for some reason, but the church most certainly did. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to, to, to frame it. And I think, it's, I think a lot of people relate to that, whether it's because they are also a person of color that was brought up in these predominantly white or white led spaces and they just didn't they never felt comfortable there for all the reasons you mentioned or just because they maintain their faith even as shitty things may have happened to them or both you know i i really appreciate your your comments there i do you think now like you mentioned that like the emergent church movement which started in the early 2000s and then followed by the missional thing. I actually hadn't heard that term in a while. <laughs> like that sort of serious. <laughs> missional is older than emergent. Yeah. No, but uh, to me to me they're a little linked in my head because and I think it's because uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm looking at I'm trying to look at my my <laughs> bookshelf books, yeah. uh, <laughs> which has I have my copy of a new kind of Christian somewhere. And there's, I think the the slipcover of the book has all these adjectives on it. And I believe one of them was missional. Oh, and I just had that in my head. Good catch. Good catch. Um, so anyways, 
you mentioned that that you like were tracking with some of these movements and then then you over time started to develop this racialized lens and i'm curious if you think that other parts of christianity including some of the white people that are involved in that are starting to catch up to where people are and because i I feel like in the last at least here in the united states if you've been extremely online since like 2014 when michael brown was killed and then all of the racial aware racial awareness that's been built up like i we're at this point now where white people are finally being viewed and criticized through that racial lens and i think it's long overdue (laughs) But that's why we're seeing pushback here in the United States regarding critical race theory and other things. Do you think that 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 is be is conscious enough? Like when we're having when people have conversations regarding church or regarding I I, I want to go eventually towards deconstruction in particular, um, because that's where for better or worse, like that's sort of where where a lot of my work lands. I didn't. Like when I started, I didn't really use that term, and but I think a culture has sort of evolved around it really rapidly. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> let's okay. get back to yeah, yeah, yeah. let's get back to <laughs> what are we talking about? Racism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and just I the the way you said you know you started looking at it through this racialized lens of being able to create communities where you can belong as well as understand your relationship to the ones that where you felt like you didn't belong. If I'm understanding you right. No, that's, that's, that's partially the story. I I mean, my story, however, is unique in the sense that you don't need to tell unless, and that's, it's not, especially in America that often, let's say a, a black, black folks that they need to be alert of their racialization. Like, no, but that's just something, you know, right. And that's something I knew as well, but hadn't articulated or named as such in in my church experience. And because I don't fit ethnic traditions, because that's where you would go if you could fit Chinese or Japanese, you would test maybe a white church experience, but you would probably stick with your with your ethnicity when it t- comes to community or church, or at least you would have that option. Now, young folks, second gen, third gen might leave to try out new things in white evangelicalism, but then they get there and realize they are going to be faced with different problems around whiteness and basically not being represented or seen for who they are in those spaces. So they either leave the faith or they they go back to ethnic traditions. I don't have the ethnic tradition to go back to. I'm too brown for Chinese church. Uh, don't speak Chinese. Don't uh, too brown for Japanese church. Uh, there's no Caribbean church that would have West Indians in it around me. Maybe in Toronto, not here. The Caribbean churches that would be here would be black black traditions. So where did you go? Like where do you go? So that took me some time to become more alert to what was going on around me. But in terms of church culture in general, and I kind of use this as Canada's a further ahead in some ways. 
I would contend that when it comes to aspects, except for how we're dealing with our colonial history with indigenous folks, that we're behind America because we don't have a border with Mexico. So we don't have a significant black population here. And if we do, this is new black immigrants, right? This is not Toronto or Nova Scotia where there are established black communities. Canadian churches, Canadian Christians have barely come to reckon, especially evangelicals with racialization or segregation in their churches. You can barely talk about it. The catalyst would have been maybe Charlottesville and certainly the Black Lives movements surrounding George Floyd. And all of a sudden, there was a deluge of evangelicals really interested in this subject. But of course, as we know how it goes for, for most things around justice, most of it is performative. How have evangelicals specifically embodied new direction in terms of dealing with their own whiteness or their own formation in white supremacy? I'll say that COVID, its continued existence has given these churches a pass where congregations were crying out and saying, we got to do something because we never have around George Floyd sticking or the pandemic sticking around gave these churches an excuse to not deal or even start dealing with these issues. So here, I think it's something that congregations that are dwindling and closing, there's an exodus happening. They are asking for some shifts. They're asking for some leadership around matters of justice, specifically justice for marginalized Christians of color, but also indigenous folks. And then that opens the door to other spaces of marginalization. I don't know if there's going to be a lot of shifts here in the same way that there's digging in the heels. Can you really imagine a congregation or a denomination that can barely let women in, that won't even broach or has, in fact, made renewed stances, banning same-gendered marriages? Do you think that these churches, like, <laughs> to, to, to be crass, white people are part of the LGBTQ community, right? When we talk about black or brown or indigenous bodies, we're talking you have to go even deeper, perhaps, and hit a foundation of white supremacy. Man, if you can't even talk about letting women in the door, how are you going to go down and contend with even deeper problems? Now, perhaps those aren't deeper problems. There's no oppression Olympics. But... That, that's the space where I think evangelicalism in Canada is at, but that also is a reflection of evangelicalism el elsewhere. So, yes, there's some good shifts happening. Yes, I'm always, I always feel good when I look at new generations coming up and I'm like blown away by the leadership that they're offering and the types of things that they're talking about and dealing with. And it's like, wow, like if I was doing this stuff 20 years ago, like no way I would have. And so that gives me a lot of, a lot of hope, but I come from a position where I don't really care what the denomination or what evangelicalism does. It doesn't touch me. It doesn't impact me. I don't get paid by it. 
I never have been paid by it. It formed me, so I'm an expert in it, but I don't care if it dies because I'm too busy over here doing a new thing. And there are more people taking a dream to do a new thing, knowing that it's going to be imperfect, but grant the possibility for life. I, I can't imagine giving my life into evangelicalism in hopes that maybe they will contend with their white supremacy because I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I really liked what you had to say there at the end about that. You, you gave me an opportunity for a really good segue here <laughs> uh, because you mentioned how like evangelicalism formed you, but you're not really interested in continuing it like you don't have an investment. And perpetuating That's a good word. Yeah. Investment is a good word. Yeah. You don't have this this investment in perpetuating the institution of evangelicalism, especially pre- predominantly white evangelicalism, because of the the failings that you mentioned and the fact that it that is when it comes down to it, like the fact that white evangelicalism is so reticent to reckon with its white supremacy, like that's a lot of emotional work. You know, I, I couldn't even recognize that and vocalize that in the way that I'm able to now without being able to, to do that work. Nonetheless, I really like the way you said that because I think it sort of gets to the heart of what, what my particular project is on, on this show and what's animated me to do it for the number of years that I have, which is this thing formed us, but and there, there is a, there is basically, there should be, there should be spaces to process how the consequences of how it formed us for good or for bad or for neutral or whatever. But a lot of the focus is on, is on bad or crappy stuff. And that's what a lot of deconstruction type content that's blossomed in the last few years. As you mentioned, there were, as you said, like there were people that were doing this before there were people like Brian McLaren. It was really the people that you can point to were the people that could get book deals in the two thousands and the nineties and before, and now we have social media. So people can, can share their stories without needing a book deal. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> and so <laughs> look at us, <laughs> look, look at us now, look at us go. <laughs> we're doing it. So, uh, but with, with deconstruction, it like, I have my own sort of theories that that's why I'm working on a book now about how these these spaces now that are primarily online spaces, they sort of happen at this accelerated rate. And there's a couple of things that that even even with our best efforts to to influence them for good, you know, norms are created or that sort of thing. So I'm curious, like how, how, what your read is on the sort of deconstruction spaces that have, have grown up here and really in the English speaking West, that's all I can really speak to, because that's all I can literally understand without a lot more effort on my part, sort of in the English speaking West about how, how we're all reckoning with evangelicalism. How do you approach it? You just did it a season on it. What are your sort of thoughts about where, where that is right now? And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got some thoughts. I know you got some thoughts. I know <laughs> on the, uh, yeah. on my, uh, on the episode I had you on, we talked a little bit about this cause I have a critique to deconstruction. We'll, we'll come back to the notion of online space 
because it, because I think there's there's something well there's obviously something there deconstruction space yeah English speaking sure I would add white white English speaking for sure that's what it is it is dominated by whiteness evangelical in particular and I've had to sit with that a little bit because there's a reality demographically that white voices are going to dominate that space. But if I just went through a whole spiel on how white evangelicals are not going to be able to contend with their white supremacy, like if, if you've been on this earth, however many years, and you're just shaped without you, you're, you even knowing you've been shaped by cultural whiteness. Like if I have to deal with my whiteness and white supremacy, man, I don't know how much you're going to have to deal with it. Right. Especially for white folks. So that just takes time. All that to say. So I've been critical of deconstruction as, as a movement in a sense that it is repeating the same problems of institutional whiteness in that white voices are dominating. And that's not going to get you away from the root problem of white supremacy. That's not to say, and so we started this whole podcast episode on story. That's not to say that everyone can't be or shouldn't be sharing, telling, getting their story out there. Because not only is that cathartic release, but it's also going to give hope to others who resonate with that story. So from that, I would go down and say, well, <laughs> the reason why these hashtags are so dominated by white voices is cultural, is a racialization thing. But oh, man, like, look at how many white, look, look at how many people white evangelicalism harmed. Like, whoa, that's just we're barely scratching the surface and again i don't care about the institution but when you, when the institution comes to fight back to delegitimize a movement or to say that your pain isn't real like get a, get out man <laughs> what's going on there other than the attack of an inherited power and privilege that you would decry a movement that is merely sharing the broken hearts of all the people you harmed. So in that sense, like the entire movement is filled with stories of goodness, hurt, hurtful stories, broken stories. But th these are the little pieces that start repair. I think like that, that start of the, of the journey unto restoration. But I do think we have to be intentional with drawing in voices from the margins to paint a picture of a better way or else we'll just wind up being like, oh, that's so great. You're you're so hip and progressive now. And you like <laughs> it doesn't matter to me if you're conservative, progressive. Both folks are struggling to contend with their white supremacy uh, and not just white folks either. Like we see how Asians, Asian Americans and Asian folks have been reminded over the pandemic that we come with the terms and conditions too. But we've been really, really cool with just upholding white supremacy so long as we get a little bit of the cut and all the anti-Asian racism that we're seeing crop up, or rather just come back out into the forefront. It's always been there. Reminds us we come with the terms and conditions. So I don't know if you'll see voices in the deconstruction or ex-evangelical movement that are people of color, black, indigenous, like we weren't there really. We were adjacent. It was not the white 
we don't use that term, evangelical church. It was the Chinese evangelical church. Now we call them, right? It was the Japanese evangelical or the Vietnamese, all these ethnic churches. We got our own problems to deal with, and a lot of them were inherited, but that's going to be, I don't know, is that a different hashtag or what? But yeah, I, I mean, and as far as the hashtag goes, like the, the understanding of how that catches on or, <laughs> or like goes viral is sort of beyond me. But like that, but to your point, it is dominated by that because it's sort of what it's related to. But it, I, I sort of see, and, and this is just my own perspective, see that. And I, I don't disagree. Like a lot of the, the known voices are, are white and there is work that needs to be done by white people. And at the same time, like the existence of that doesn't mean necessarily that there is, there is not, or should not be some other more inclusive term. If that, if that is appropriate at some point, or like, you know, some other hashtag that comes along. Cause there, to me, it seems like there's like this constellation of them. Like, uh, the witness did, a, a, a hashtag campaign last year called leave loud for black Christians. Leave loud. Yeah. 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 That, which, yeah. Yeah. And that was quite successful. Yeah. Of like leave loud, make your point when you leave these white evangelical spaces, you know, uh, church to empty the pews, like they all have their, these different functions, but do you relate like the general term deconstruction to that sort of whiteness too? Cause like that is that that's like, to me, like even an even more general term, because like some people will say like, Oh, that's, that's got to do with Derrida and like literary deconstruction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you, <laughs> and you're just like, okay, nerd. Thanks. Like, <laughs> no, like I was, and then I realized as I was, I was interviewing David Hayward, the naked pastor, as he was talking about <laughs> Derrida. And, uh, and then I realized in that moment, it's like, oh my gosh, I read on grammatology in seminary. <laughs> and and I kind of forgot about it, but that shaped me. And I remember using like a seminary nerd, Derrida, he has, I don't know what he would classify them as, but uses um, language, uses the term language to describe meta narratives. And I was trying to, <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> I was trying to explain this concept of, of, you know, different cultural worlds to an elders board at a white evangelical church when I was in seminary. What was I thinking? Holy <laughs> moly. Oh my yeah, gosh. The, I was that guy. The framework probably wasn't there for them. <laughs> the framework wasn't there for me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like are you kidding? I probably read like 16 pages of this Dorita book and like oh, yeah. <laughs> language deconstruction. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I appreciate you sharing on exvangelical and for you to create something like that and to see where it goes and, and realizing like, I have no, you can't con contain or constrain this thing, but it's become like something beyond your wildest to match. I can't conceptualize how many uh, uh, mentions on TikTok did you say? At this point, it's like 650 million, like impre impressions of or views that's uh, that's wild it's that crazy wild i i mean that sounds like more people than there are on the planet but like that's wild yeah it's it's definitely nuts and like and to me like <laughs> but to me like you know most of those people don't 90 99 of those people don't 
relate that term well, or that hashtag. One percent of six hundred fifty million. <laughs> like, I'll take it. But it it is like probably ninety nine point nine percent. Like you know, but no, no, you know what? It is something though, right, Blake? It, it's it's the creation of a movement. It is a cultural push that not even so. I mean, if, if you watch your social media this past, or even like every time Christianity Today says something stupid. Right. It's always like, oh my gosh, like, why are you pressing? They don't know how to deal with the size of this cultural movement that has been catalyzed, of which is, is going in all these different directions, like you said. And yeah, I don't decry it whatsoever in the same way that I don't, I'm not calling for the destruction of the white evangelical church. Like, I don't, my hope is not that it, that it burns to the ground. I just, no institutions don't change very fast and it will probably die and i'm not going to shed a tear that's fine but <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah so your question on the constellations so yeah and really i mean i just more about like i i'm always i'm curious about people's relation to different terms like some some people i've i've noticed like some content creators of color that are in this space don't like to use terms like deconstruction or exvangelical for the very reasons that you've delineated. And I think that's valid. And they prefer terms like decolonization. And so to me, yeah, like, yeah, to me, like what, one of the ideas I'm exploring is basically because of the way these platforms work, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, they expose you to these ideas and these these things based on engagement. And if you engage with them, you get more. And then eventually you get overexposed to them. And like it leads to like a type of linguistic burnout. Like you literally like the. That sounds like a chapter in your, your book there. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I, I I have a chapter about how social media works and how like how media affects us. And to me, that's really fascinating. And like, it's never, never like my desire for someone to associate a term with something harmful. You know, I may have the most specific intentions in mind, but they develop other connotations because of how other people use the terms that are well beyond your control. And so, so I'm always curious about. I I don't know if I would be harm. I, I don't know if I would use the word harm. But there may be people for whom it does represent some level of like, you know, it's too negative or it doesn't encompass the, the you know, this type of thing, which it, like I'm getting a little far afield here because I'm I am more curious about like, do you when it when it relates to your work and how you in your work want to engage with people using terms like deconstruction like you talked about in physical spaces, perceiving things uh, through a racialized lens. And I think we carry that into our online spaces. And that's absolutely unequivocally. Yeah. And yeah. then it's exacerbated by the algorithm, right? That's um, Michael O. Emerson and Corey Edwards. I think uh, both of them divided by faith is Michael o. Emerson's book, but uh, white evangelicals have the least diverse friendship networks somewhere around and I tested this too, ad hoc, 95% sameness, 92 to 95% sameness. I did that on social media profiles, like how many people are white, it's, it's the same. And so that that's just a, again, that's not 
right. his, his book is science. Mine was just counting a few. That, that's a problem. And I think that would be my critique of the hashtags in that there is a, a push against powers that have sought less of you in the church experience that have harmed you in the church experience. And I think one of the critical to be the broken record pieces we have to contend with as to why that happens happened. And also how we can prevent that from happening again is to contend with our white supremacy. And if we just surround ourselves with the same voices without branching out, we're going to replicate the same problems as inevitable inevitable we need diversity of of people to come through and glimpse us a better way and that's not going to come from within the tent as it were so that's the critique of that but when i look at that constellation as you said of of hashtags i see deconstruction being more diverse not entirely but a little bit more diverse Decolonization is certainly not a Christian term. So that's all sorts of different things in there. There's always a danger of, of any term, but decolonization, for example, being stripped away from its meaning as, you know, institutions rob it from its meaning and try to make it something it's not ought to be. Part of that is kind of work as well. Like we all have different work to do. Arguably, white people can't decolonize anything. You can't decolonize from something you automatically inherit. It's like whiteness. You can't just divest yourself and, and say, I'm not going to inherit what is automatically bestowed. You can contend with that. You can fight with that and say, I will divest myself from this. I will put my body on the line for a different way. But can you decolonize? Indigenous folks don't decolonize anything. I don't think they reclaim. So yeah, those are all just different stories of different folks. I haven't found one. I'm not the expert in hashtags, but um, right. I mean, they're they're yeah. I don't even <laughs> I don't know who is a hashtag <laughs> expert. Well, I, <laughs> I thought that was your book. <laughs> I mean, I as far as what be as, as far as what is going to be, you know, <laughs> what predicting virality is. I don't, I don't know that you can like literally we've lived in the chaos of a physical virus for the last two years. Like even, even the idea, even the idea of virality is something to be desired is I think questionable at this point. Like that's a, another good chapter in your book. <laughs> so <laughs> write that one down. That's a good yeah. one. <laughs> I will. I will write that one that. down. Yeah. 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 There was another thing I was going to build off of. You <laughs> see, this is the and thing then about, I got going. This is the thing about complimenting a Midwesterner. You throw them off their game. Like <laughs> we is don't that, know, we don't know how to accept <laughs> about, uh, compliments. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right. So I, I think it like the thing that fascinates me is is the fact that a lot of these conversations have been going on for a long time like you mentioned with the emergent church and I, I read a book or listened to a book rather uh, recently called the kingdom of God has no borders by Melanie McAllister. And it's about global evangelicalism really from the perspective of the impact of American based missions in other parts of the world that then 
over time create more local forms of evangelicalism. So meaning like in the 1960s in Africa, there were decolonization discussions using those terms saying we don't want the American missionaries to be leading our churches. We can do this ourselves. We have the resources. We have the faith. We have the institutions. We want to lead ourselves. And then that these conversations keep cycling through. It's and, a cycle. And then, yeah. Yeah. So I do want to circle back though t- to have you talk about your book because you've talked about this this aspect of of being on the margins and your book is called When We Belong Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins. And I think one of the aspects of one of the most salient critiques of evangelical deconstruction spaces by BIPOC commentators is that how people of color relate to faith is very different than how white people relate to faith. And some people, some white people who deconstruct also deconvert, and that's the healthiest option option for them. But there are other types of indigenous spiritualities or other types of spiritualities that are more resonant with people who are not white. So I'm not sure if that plays into your book, but just tying into like what I know other folks have said in regards to, you know, a lot of white ex-evangelicals also being ex-Christians instead of maybe. Yeah, that's so that's, I think, separate than your first question pertaining to a difference of experience or spirituality or religiosity yeah take it take it any direction you want (laughs) yeah so the my book is focused for folks on the margins and initially it was written for BIPOC folks but then I it maybe it's COVID related stretched it to say okay if you have ever faced a weird moment in church where a part of your being was pushed to the outside you have been you may have experienced marginalization. So that is a wide group of people. Could be around thoughts. So you have a particular theological strength. So that would be anybody. But then you think of other minorities. It could be gender minorities. It could be by sexuality. It could be by race or ethnicity. And so I do cast a wide net around the experience of weird moments in churches. Where I go, though, is through a process of naming. So I do, I write a book on deconstruction. I give you a process, not a formula, but I say, we interrogate, ask the questions around what to trash, keep and reclaim. And then once we pull the veil back and we see the guts of the institution, or we dig deep enough to hit bedrock, we need to start naming the problems. Because if we don't give it name, we'll replicate them. And so that's probably the problem with all these hashtags. It's like give name that white supremacy is at bedrock and deal with it. One of the pieces connected with white supremacy is Christian supremacy and how Christian supremacy has now been formed in, in white Euro-centered or, or American-centered thinking. That's important because ironically for those who, and if you need to go, you got to go. 
if you deconvert, you leave Christianity entirely. I mean, I can't imagine the pain of that and the abuse you must have faced to have to face that choice. And, and that was the most life-giving choice too. So I'm not saying that is illegitimate by any means, but a lot of conversation around deconstruction and the fear of the institution, which we don't care about, but <laughs> is this notion that you're going to deconstruct yourself out of Christianity. And you might, and you might. But that's like a form of Christian supremacy in that the assumption is your experience could or amounts to the entirety of the Christian faith, that there couldn't possibly be other traditions out there rooted in black and brown traditions or traditions that are rooted in resistance or justice or ways of being that are formative into a better way of living or being human, of being whole, that there aren't options out there. And there are. And Jesus is too big for me to push him away because a bunch of white dudes screwed it up. Now I'm being crass now. It can, it can be anybody. Anybody can screw it up, right? And, and people do that and they bring huge harm. Is there a possibility of reclamation? And so I offer some ideas. Again, I, I don't have formula, but ideas that look at the black church tradition in America birthed on North American soil out of resistance. Is this not an option for you to consider when it comes to reimagining Christianity in a new way? Well, of course it is. Now they have to contend with their own problems, right? But is it an option? Yeah. The other I, I do a few of those, but I also appeal, and you mentioned it, to indigenous spirituality. They're really unique stories. Of course, you can't create a monolith by me, the Stony Nakoda Nation, which is part of Banff. I mean, we call it Banff now, but the Stony people, the mountains in the Banff region are part of their creation stories. And surprisingly, the early missionaries that came to the region, they actually had a good relationship. So this is before residential schools. This is before all the calamity of colonization. There was a good relationship because, well, one of the missionaries was indigenous. And also they managed, they just said, here's a good book. Do with it as you will. And the way of Jesus came to coincide, it came to work with together in relationship with the indigenous ways of being as well. And it created something beautiful temporarily, temporarily. So there is at least a hope or a story connected to a different way of being within indigenous spirituality that can reclaim a Jesus that offers life. So all that to say that there are possibilities out there that aren't rooted in white hegemony that are worth reclaiming. And I'll do that imperfectly, totally, all the time, imperfectly, that I, I do those things and as a church planner and, and church, and this is something we wanted to talk about on, on uh, what does community online look like now, but like we're trying to embody a new ethic, the ethic of Jesus in church community and our messed up world. And we're, we're making progress. There are beautiful things in spite of all of our imperfections. 
And, and because relationships are so messy, it's mess, but it's also good. So somewhere in the mess, there are these possibilities unto better and they're, and they're worth chasing. I don't know when that happens, especially for someone who has gone through trauma, hurt, grief, pain in their church experience. I don't know when that happens. It doesn't have to happen, but just know that there are possibilities to reclaim out there. There are options. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's great. And I, I think that books like that are, are, and will be valuable for a very long time because they're no matter how you sort of reckon with things, whether you, whether your heart, as you mentioned, like people that may listen to this show are very likely heartbroken about something that was significant to them at one point. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, why you're here. Isn't that something? <laughs> that's another, you did the hashtag, but you also did this podcast and that's probably an aspect that everyone shares with their experience. Right. And whether, and the, my approach is has always been open-ended, just like you said, like if you have to leave, leave, but if you're looking for something to fill that particular role in your life, there are other other aspects of spirituality, including different forms of Christianity that, that can do that. So that's, that's really cool. And I can't wait to learn more about the book. When is it, when is it, will it be coming out? When We Belong will come out June, mid-June, June 15, maybe, but mid-June. So it's just wrapping up now as we record. Yeah, it's coming. I don't know if there are many books, like we didn't name it <laughs> on deconstruction or something, but if there are many books, especially written by authors of color on deconstruction and also paving a, p- a pathway back. So that's, that's kind of where I, I lend my voice and that would be a particular person, I think, who's going to find value in this story. But 650 million impressions. Blake, <laughs> come on. Even 1%. We, get, we could get a slice. <laughs> yeah. So. If I had the TikTok. Uh, what is TikTok? That's not about it. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is a fun, fun site. So, but yeah, there's this will be a, a great addition. What I think is always really good about books is that they they have a different sort of life cycle than than the sort mm, of mm. short half-life of like of podcasts and things like that like uh or or memes or whatever like people will can once it's out there it, it'll be out there for a long time so and sort of as you mentioned in your own story like these things some of these things that led to what you put in your book took you years to parcel out. And like the, the thing that's so interesting about this moment is like, we always sort of had books or movies or things like that. And now we supplement that with like this crazy ongoing constant yeah. conversation <laughs> yeah, that happens yeah. all the time. Uh, and it leads to cool things like the fact that you reached out to me a few months ago and I had the opportunity to do the same here. And I mean, I'm, I'm in like a, a Chicago suburb and you're in Calgary. Like I would not have, we would yeah. not have had that opportunity 
otherwise. So I want to recognize that too. Like, yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, that's like church community as well as like, okay. So the whole missional church ideas, incarnate presence, touch, feel, get away from consumerism, embody. Well, how do you do that in COVID? But one of the things you always slammed was online church. It was lazy. And then COVID comes around. And it was not only COVID, but the way the internet has drawn people into my church, my first church plant, and the relationships that are there, people found it through the internet, through the website, through Twitter. And they're still together 10 years later. My second church plant, same thing. And now, of course, it's all online. We're not in person. And we're figuring out what this whole spiritual dynamic deconstruction specifically as well in this community looks like online and how to be how to be church. And we haven't figured this one out to be church fragmented by space, but drawn together around the same affinity and same beliefs, roughly, even existing in different cities. We actually have half of our of our community right now is in a different city and the other half here. And, and then there's individuals all across Canada. There's someone from the U S just drawing in like before that would be like, that's so disembodied. That's never going to work. That's. And now it's just like, forget about all that. Is there beauty in here? Can disabled people finally draw in without all the extra barriers? Can, we talk about things in the intimacy of our own home. Like there's beauty happening with this online stuff. So I repent there. Now I can put it on, on the internet <laughs> in recorded format. Like I was a guy who was like on, online church that big churches are doing is lazy. But now it's like, wow, man, I got to repent of that. There's so much goodness happening in the midst. And of course it would be better if we could sit around the table and do the same thing. But this has also given us life in a time where we need, <laughs> as, oh man, we need it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a random connection to make, but bear with me and then we'll, we can wrap things up that I'm, I, I came across this, this book because it was, it's actually a sci-fi book because I came across a profile uh, of the author in Wired magazine. The, the author's name is Ada Palmer, and she's a history professor, professor of, of Renaissance history at the University of Chicago. And she wrote a series of sci-fi books called the Terra Ignata series. And it has some really fascinating ideas in it that basically takes place in the 25th century on Earth. And a few significant things have happened in the interim between the 21st and 25th centuries. First, there's no, it's illegal to use gendered, to reference any people's gender publicly. Like everybody uses they, them. And there is no public expression of religion because of the church wars in the 21st century. There are still these like type of pastoral type figures called sensayers that you can have philosophical and religious conversations with and they're basically like religious counselors but then beyond that like there's also the final sort of pieces that this author creates for this new world is 
There are hypersonic flying cars. So distance means nothing. You can work anywhere in the world and you're like two, two or three hours away. And the nuclear family is no longer the main thing. They have these, uh, the main local unit is called a Bosch, which is like a derivative of, I think, Bashido from, uh, from Japanese. It's like a small unit of like four to 20 people that live in a house or some place and raise people collectively. But to me, this very idea, what what's really animating about it and feels resonant is the way like people do forge connections online. And there are lots of downsides. You know, there can be online drama that can be really traumatic. And oh, that yeah. freaking sucks. But at the same time, you can also connect yourself to either mm-hmm. a small community that's intentional like a church or a broader public of people who relate to you through some sort of shared experience. And both of those, all of those things can be true all at the same time. Mm. And it's like fascinating and scary and exciting all at the same time. So I, I'm sorry. I, I, I haven't had a chance to really thank you for listening for a couple of minutes while I nerd out about this book that I'm like super into right now. <laughs> I mean, now I, uh, I've been dabbling in fantasy and, and sci-fi, so I might be going on the list. Yeah, it's the first book is called Two, T-O-O, Two Like the Lightning, and it's fantastic. I'm in the middle of it right now. But this has been a really fascinating, really broad conversation, Rahadi. Where can people find, find you online, find your podcast or anything else you, you might want to mention here? Yeah, well, you know, buy a box of books, give them to all your friends, give them to your mom's, uh, buy a bunch of coloring books because my garage is full of them. But other than that, yeah, I love, would love to hear from folks if this podcast resonated with you. You can find me. I'm always on Twitter at Rohati. I haven't been able to buy the Instagram version, so it's uh, rohati.nagasar. Those are the two places, rohati.com is the website i don't have much there in terms of of um posts used to do like is blogging in still like i'm not blogging anymore <laughs> i have a newsletter that comes thing. out <laughs> every two weeks i have a newsletter with reflections so that's actually my blogging i guess i saw all the cool kids doing that so i was like i'll i'll do that and so i i offer some reflections and stuff about the world it's mostly what I'm feeling. And so you can find that at rohati.com. Yeah, it, connect in on any of those and, and say what's up. Awesome. Rohati, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. 